0: Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 81st episode, I'll be talking to Jay Editon, co-host of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, about middle-grade novels like Anastasia Krupnik and MacDonald Hall. Along the way, we discuss the high culture capital of Central West Florida. Being Raised by Cable with Carlos Castaneda Bedtime Stories, and of course, because it's Jay, we talk about Speed Racer. It comes up naturally, I swear. Editor's Note. This podcast was recorded under some interesting circumstances. I had just moved into a house, like two days before. I was surrounded by boxes, I had no internet connection, so I was talking to Jay through my phone and recording into a microphone that I was holding in front of my face with my hand into an offline laptop as such my levels were kind of garbage i was blowing out all over the place hopefully it doesn't distract you too much from a very enjoyable conversation we join this conversation already in progress you may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake?
1: I am Jay Editon. I'm half of
0: the podcast, Jay and Miles Explain
1: the X-Men, which is an ongoing examination of the ins, outs, retcons, clones, and time travel of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. I'm also a writer and an editor of comics, nonfiction, essays, and journalism.
0: And a handwriting example for a number of comics, a fact that I am very impressed by.
1: Yes, I am the basis for Clem Robbins' cursive and calligraphy fonts and occasionally do cursive spot lettering.
0: Yeah, which is really cool. I'm a cursive fan myself.
1: Yes, and you have terrific Polymer script, by the way.
0: Oh, thank you. It was something I kind of retaught myself. I always had terrible cursive because I had to learn it at school. Mm-hmm. And so I had this like really wobbly hand. And I had a grade six teacher who said, you know, I'm tired of reading this. You can just print if you want to. And then I stuck with that through to university. And then about maybe five years ago, just decided to teach it back to myself because I was looking at letters sent in by like customers at my job and being like, you know, maybe I should learn that back again. So that's why I started doing the cursive tweets thing was practice. And now it's just become a thing that I do. And now I use it pretty much interchangeably with my regular hand.
1: Have you found the iampath archives?
0: I have not. It does sound like a secret archive. Or library.
1: Oh my god, I'll send you a link. It's International Association of Masters Something Penmanship Something Something. Oh. And they've got scans of a ton of old handwriting manuals, mostly Palmer and Spencerian Ooh. script, but also things like decorative flourishes. And they're fantastic. They're somewhat useful. They're they're useful if you know how to follow an old handwriting manual or, or derive strokes from seeing, you know, letter thickness. But they're fantastically cool.
0: That's amazing. I, I expect I will lose Many days to that link, so feel free to send that through. Will do. Uh, I'm the person who, at work, if someone comes up to ask me a question at my desk, I will often be taking my notes with either a fountain pen or occasionally a pilot parallel pen. And I've got little jars of ink behind the desk, and they look at it and they Mm -hmm. go, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing. What are you doing? I'm using a pen. What's your question? (laughs) So, yes, I I will be doing lots of practicing. No question. Now, coming to explain the X-Men, it's been going a while now. Is it three years now? It's going on
1: four years this April, because it's coming up on episode 200.
0: Wow. And I'm going to be that person and say I have been listening since episode one. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And I have the special distinction of, at one point, my friend Ginger, who is, has also been on this podcast. We were sitting in a bar, and I was reiterating a story that Kurt Busick told to you about <laughs> the Dark Phoenix saga, and how a planet suddenly had people due to a miscommunication between writer and artist. And I explained the whole thing and I got to the end and they looked at me and they go, you realize I also listened to explain the X-Men. And I went, oh, (laughs) You, you let me get all the way to the end of that. And they were like, well, you just seem to be enjoying yourself so much. And it's a good story. It is. So, yes, I have long been an evangelist for your podcast. And listeners, if you don't know, basically what Jay and Miles do is they go through anywhere I think anywhere about three to six issues per episode, sometimes a little bit more. Usually we have a couple that are just one. Depending on if it's a really kind of meaty subject matter. Yeah. They go through and they read all of the X-Men and then they summarize it for you. And it's really entertaining and lovely. And also you learn stuff, like legitimately learn stuff. And it's fun. So you should go and check it out if you aren't already. If you somehow live under a rock and have not listened to Explaining X-Men, then I'm sorry. And you should remedy that.
1: It's allegedly delightful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, like, for something as long-running as that, do you find that your life has changed in how you approach the subject matter since you started?
1: Well, I mean, the really obvious part, the way that we sort of sum up the arc of the creative collaboration in it is that when the show started, my name was Rachel and we were married. But... (laughs) (laughs) and lived in the same city. So those changes have necessarily led to some fundamental differences in how we approach collaboration. Mostly the moving city one, because we had a very, very set routine for writing from the very, very beginning that we've had to sort of find new approaches to now that we're living in separate cities and can't go out to breakfast every Saturday. But for the most part, it's stayed remarkably consistent. Miles and I have been friends and have known each other since... We were ten and eleven. So for those of you counting long at home, I think it's about twenty-four years. And we've been talking about comics and explaining them in stereo to hapless friends for a lot of that time, and doing research together and doing things like taking trips together or moving together or making major life decisions together that have necessitated a lot of collaborative research. And the two things we did before the podcast and the reason we decided to start the podcast were making a zine together and then producing an Adventures of Pete and Pete reunion show together. So By the time we started the podcast, while there was stuff to iron out, we had a pretty solid collaborative dynamic, at least when it came to the show's content
0: and writing. Yeah, and I remember... I've actually asked you at one point about, you know, outlining versus writing, because Mm -hmm. from the amount of content in the show, it feels like it would be incredibly written. And you've informed me that that's not the case, that you often just go from an outline and a lot of that comes out kind of in the booth or in the conversation. But yeah, it's a remarkably concise and well put together show.
1: We outline pretty tightly in terms of the stuff that we want to cover. So our outlines usually look like kind of a detailed point by point of the plot elements we want to go through, and usually notes about the kind of commentary to come out of them, any citations that we want to make sure we have on hand just so we don't have to memorize them. The only parts we actually script word for word are the cold open at the beginning, and we've got standard intro and outro pattern.
0: Listeners, like I said, like I'm going to sound like a broken record. Just go and listen. They're in the middle of the 90s now. There's a lot of painful stuff <laughs> and lots of teeth. So many pouches, so many pouches, so many teeth.
1: Whether the pouches <laughs> are full of teeth, we've been unable to confirm, but probably
0: and yeah, I'm I'm holding special fondness because you're coming up on the era when I would have been a teenager with no money in Vancouver who used to go to his local comic book shop and read books off the shelves till they kicked him out. <laughs> and occasionally, once in a while, would buy from the damaged or discounted box and would get things like, you know, a trading card for Mother Ascani and read the back and have no clue what was going on there. Because my only X-Men knowledge came from the cartoon. And I was like, Oh, okay. Oh, the future, like I like cable that one time, and then be like, oh, and it says right on the back. Also, Rachel Summers. I'm like, who the hell is Rachel Summers? And so then the dumpster diving began. But that's the thing, especially in a world like comics, where something can be so daunting with this, as you pointed out, you know, four years worth of densely recapped continuity. A show like yours, or like Hub does on Titan, up the defense, is really useful. And so I've got many people in my office, or many people who are my friends, who I have recommended to go and listen. And not just for the fact of just here, this you need to learn about this thing. This is, you know, homework for you. But no, it's presented in a really lovely way. And again, I feel like I'm rambling and but it's like I am a big fan.
1: Well, I feel really strongly that one of the more difficult aspects of shared universe superhero comics and the community around them as those things currently stand is the perception of inaccessibility. Wikipedia and all of that stuff is kind of a double-edged sword there. Because on one hand, you can get any information if you look hard enough for it, or if you know the right people, or you can track down the media itself. But on the other hand, that creates an implicit obligation to do that and to know all of those things. And it makes what's supposed to be fairly casually enjoyable media feel like homework. I love X-Men comics. I love ridiculous convoluted shared universe continuity in general. But I also kind of get that not everyone is in it for the tangles. And the idea of taking this thing that I really like and making it less daunting or putting it in a format that people can just sort of wade into a little bit instead of having to dive straight into the deep end seemed like a really good goal. And it was honestly, that was how I got into those comics to begin with, because Miles grew up reading them and I did not. He was an incredibly good ambassador for them. And that's been a philosophy that I've adopted going forward, doing the podcast, working at comic shops and working in the comics industry, that it's great to like things, and it's great to find ways for other people to also like those things.
0: Absolutely. And talk about it that it's, you know, comic superhero soap opera. And I think where some people make sort of that inaccessibility question is they think of it like as if it was something like Breaking Bad, where you have to start at the beginning. And you have to go one at a time through the episodes or else nothing is going to make sense to you.
1: No, and it's actually, it's General Hospital. Nothing ever makes sense.
0: Exactly. Yes, exactly. And
1: knowing what the last seven twists were isn't really going to help you pick up this storyline any more than just jumping in and holding on for dear life till you get your footing.
0: Perfectly put. You know, you're not going to know who Mysterious Guy with Pouches, hi Gideon, is until... A while, and then eventually when you do know, when he comes back again, you're like, oh, I remember that guy, because you'll have been on the ride for long enough.
1: And also, it was being made, especially, and we're in an era where it was being made in such a slapdash way, that the internal attention to continuity then was much lower than the now external attention to it. You know, a lot of the things that people go back and look for meaning in are in the comics accidentally. That's true of the Silver Age as well, because there, there wasn't someone who was sitting and keeping detailed track of continuity. There were a lot of people saying, what would look cool? Okay, let's do that. I'm going to make up some words.
0: Yeah, or God forbid, we have a deadline, what can we do? I think was it was one of the recent ones that you covered, that, was it five anchors on one issue?
1: Yeah, five or six. That's very common in the early 90s, especially, because you've had these you know, rock star artists who were basically determining the schedules and all of that, and everything else was essentially tied to when they got their stuff done, but they also didn't really have to hit deadlines because their names were the ones selling comics. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it's funny, and I'm actually going to put on my old person grump hat for one moment, and then I'll take it off and return to my usual self. I went to a local comic book shop that's near my work and bought a blind pack of 10 Batman comics because they were like, oh, hey, we're clearing out. You know, 10 bucks gets you 10 issues randomly from the last five years. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what the hell? Cool. I have 10 bucks. You know, I don't mind having five floppy issues. You know, I leave them in the team area when I'm done. People read at work. No big deal. And so I picked them up. And they were 10 random issues across the New 52, various series. And I read them all. And I can tell you, not a single one of them made sense out of context. Yeah, and It's that, you know, every comic should be somebody's first situation. And mm-hmm. I don't know what I would have done if any of these were my first comic. Like, even knowing what I do and listening to a lot of Sims-related media and therefore, you know, getting a lot of secondhand Batman, I still had no fucking idea what was going on.
1: Oh, man, secondhand Batman would be a good title for something. <laughs>
0: But yeah, I think that's a byproduct,
1: too, of writing in arcs rather than endless serial writing, because people see stories as having a beginning and an end. And while you could trace arcs in older comics, and when I say older, I mean like up through the late 90s, early aughts, so well, well, well into the modern age, there was a sense that any issue could be somebody's first, that they weren't going to look for the first issue of this or that story arc. And now things are paced around collections and so there's a sense that you're going to have stories that come in four or five issue blocks and you can pick things up at the beginning of one but you can't really jump into the middle
0: yeah and thinking back to that kid in the comic store that i was like i would look and it would be oh it would be number four of five. And so I would shift to the left and go down one and be like, oh, here's number one of five. And I would keep going. Of course, it would be a different comic because again, it was the 90s. But again, yeah, it's that sense of, oh, well, you can't actually jump in. That's that little bit of luck out there. I think my favorite example was, it was one of the Batman ones where it started with Dick Grayson out of costume, having a conversation to camera and then turns and reveals a random white guy that he's talking to. And I'm like, I don't need the other guy's like, okay, I'll help you. And I'm like that, tells me nothing. Who are you? What is your name? Why are you here?
1: I got nothing. I pretty much am marvel on independence
0: these days. Nah, you're good. So yeah, the grump hat is coming off. Comics try a little harder, and we'll move on. So Jay, let's start at the basics. Where did you grow up? All over the place. No, mostly
1: in South Bend, Indiana, and Sarasota, Florida. I was born in South Bend. I lived there until a little before I turned seven, and then spent the rest of my childhood in Sarasota.
0: Again, maybe this is testament to my life, but I went Sarasota, Florida. I'm like, that's where Macho Man Randy Savage is from. <laughs> Yeah, also uh, Pee Wee Herman. Oh, really?
1: Yeah, he was definitely caught masturbating in a movie theater a few miles up the road from my parents' house.
0: (laughs) That's where that happened. Oh, Pee Wee. So in growing up in Florida, as you did, like, I know, there are myths surrounding Florida. (laughs) And as the Florida Man Twitter account will continue to regale us. Was it as Florida as that? Or is that, you know, a more recent development?
1: So Sarasota is something of an oddity even in florida it's in general in florida and in in general in that area of florida you kind of get two versions of pretty much every city especially coastal cities because there's the tourist version and there's the year-round version and sometimes they intersect so sarasota is basically a city that the circus built okay it was where the ringling Brothers circus used to winter. And it's where the Ringling Mansion is. If you've ever seen the Ewan McGregor, Uma Thurman, Great Expectations, Miss Havisham's house is the Kazan, is John Ringling's mansion, which is about four blocks from my parents' house. Cool. And it's an interesting neighborhood. It's basically the neighborhood around the Ringling campus and then around New College of Florida, which is the Florida State University System's Honors College. It's got that stuff. And then it gives the general impression of being a city that feels that it was maybe dumped into central West Florida by accident and really properly ought to be somewhere in Southern Italy. (laughs) It tries very hard to be a cultural capital of Florida in ways that are very, very, very prescriptive around what defines high culture. So, for instance, um, the Ringling Art Museum. I love the Ringling Museums. When I was a kid there, and it's no longer the case anymore, but when I was a kid, all of the Ringling Museums were free for anyone with any kind of Florida school ID. And because they were in my neighborhood, I could just wander in and out of them or hang out in them after school, which I did sometimes. And it was great.
0: Such a good idea.
1: But when I was a junior in high school, the art museum did a massive, massive modern installation art exhibition and a, a bunch of Joseph Boys and a bunch of more recent stuff. And its high-level donors were scandalized and the next year, the big flagship exhibitions were landscapes and Norman Rockwell, which I mean,
0: <laughs> oh, Norman wow. Rockwell
1: is fantastic. He gets a bad rap as, as being sort of the Pat family values guy. He was actually incredibly oh. political. One of the neat things about living in the Northeast now is that I've been to the actual Norman Rockwell Museum and he's fascinating and his history is fascinating. He was an unbelievably good artist and cartoonist.
0: Very, very good, yes.
1: But he's also very, very safe when it comes to putting together an exhibition. So Sarasota had that, and it had heavily subsidized youth opera and youth orchestra programs. I was in the youth orchestra, but also incredibly poorly funded schools and incredibly poorly funded arts in schools. It's one of the last kind of central enclaves of the old school, very socially progressive, but very financially conservative Republicans. It's a weird set of contradictions. It's also one of the most segregated cities in America that isn't or wasn't officially and isn't functionally a sundown town. It's an odd, odd place to grow up.
0: You mentioned you were in youth orchestra. What did you play?
1: I played violin for, God, for about 10 years.
0: Everyone that I know that has played the violin either loves it or hates it. Do you fall into either of those camps? I mean, I like it. It's a good instrument.
1: When I went to college, I bought a cello and taught myself a bunch on that and like playing it a lot more.
0: (laughs) Somehow that entirely fits with my view of you as a person. (laughs) I bought a cello and then taught myself to use it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, the cello was sort of my experiment in seeing if I could enjoy doing something without obsessively getting good at it. To which the answer was yes, but only as long as I had access to soundproof practice rooms. (laughs)
0: I was a very short-lived alto saxophone player, so anything more complicated than that always kind of mystifies me as a childhood instrument.
1: I played clarinet for a few years, too.
0: Well, then you'll understand that I didn't go further with the alto sax because I didn't know how to tongue the notes and no one taught me. And so I just like slurred my way through various Sousa marches until they were said, okay, you're allowed to play the drums now. Oh, man. Cool. Wonderful. That's what I wanted.
1: I was dubiously lucky there in that my mom was an incredibly accomplished alto and tenor saxophonist as a kid. And so when I started on clarinet, could basically tutor me in addition to my taking lessons.
0: Oh, that's really useful.
1: That only lasted a couple (laughs) of (laughs) years.
0: Which we can sidebar briefly Mm -hmm. because you've mentioned your mom and I must mention the viral sensation that is your mom's cable cosplay and your hope cosplay
1: to be fair mine is pretty much an accessory the thing that
0: that actually went viral was (laughs) was mama's
1: cable and you said it was that her first cosplay it was yeah it was her first convention actually
0: Wow. Yeah. So what was her experience with the convention as a whole? Like was, was she down with it or Oh,
1: she had she had a really good time. So she follows comics culture basically through me and the stuff I work on. This was the first time she'd been to a convention. She was really excited about it. I talked her into cosplaying Rule 63 Cable and Hope with me because basically my mom is Cable. Um I mean you you saw the <laughs> pictures. It <but, laughs> did. But it's she's also um, she's she's a middle school teacher, but she's also a diehard biker. And she is not a gun owner. She's very, very anti-gun. But I feel like in terms of parental figures most likely to survive in a post-apocalyptic future, like, she'd do pretty well. (laughs) She is fairly scary and extremely competent and has the cable glower down, which is the most important thing.
0: Oh, yes. I, that came through in the photos. Yeah, 100%. so I, I'd
1: suggested that we do this, and I'd been trying to get her to come to a convention, and specifically to one of my favorite ones. So we ended up at Emerald City Comic Con, which is sort of my go-to for conventions you can take your parents or kids to. She was there two days. She cosplayed the second day. She had a really good time. She got to meet Ryan North, which she was super, super <laughs> excited about. She loves dinosaur comics. She got to meet, I can't remember his name, but the guy who played Garon Invader Zim, which she was really, really happy about. <laughs> And see a lot of cool art. Her favorite thing, though, was watching cosplayers. Like, she was hanging out by our booth, and every single person who went past in costume, she'd call out to and ask if she could take their picture.
0: Aww, that's so nice. It was really
1: lovely. It was a lot of fun.
0: So pure. Uh, Sorry, I'm just distracted. I'm just kind of sitting here grinning like an idiot, (laughs) because it's just great. But let's swing back on topic. So, growing up in Sarasota, what sort of kid were you? Oh, man, I was
1: really bad at being a kid. (laughs) I approached childhood kind of by rote. In that I had a sense that there were things that kids ought to do, or that kids did, and therefore that I ought to try to do. But I didn't really quite get why or how. And so, and, and a big part of that is that I, the media I consumed was almost all totally disconnected from pop culture at the time. I'm not going to say I didn't have access to those things because I guess I technically did. I mean, my family wasn't deeply religious. I wasn't, you know, officially banned from consuming the rock and roll or something like that. I just didn't really have any direct connection to it. I went to a lot of alternative schools. As a little kid, I was always a little kid who wanted to sit at the grown-ups table and was way more interested in adults than in kids my age. So the idea that I should do things or try things because my peers were just never quite clicked for me. Yeah, so I I sort of think of the typical kids kid stuff of my childhood as kind of having been performing childhood, usually for the benefit of adults or out of some sort of vague sense of obligation. Like I remember at some point, there was the general sense that kids drew on walls or floors and thinking, (laughs) maybe I ought to do this, but it seems like a bad idea. So maybe I'll take this brown crayon and just sort of color in some of the cracks on the wood floor in my room. And that'll be and I'll have I'll have discharged this responsibility.
0: So you're still doing the thing.
1: And like, that would have been when I was like four or five. So that kind of reasoning. I did a lot of make-believe with my parents by myself. The really early stuff I have, I have entirely on hearsay and anecdotes. But apparently my favorite thing for a long time was a big book of portraits of composers. (laughs) And I would talk to them and I would occasionally, uh, we had this green shag carpet and I would pretend it was grass and try to feed it to them.
0: (laughs) I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing, but that's...
1: No, it's it's really, really funny and ridiculous. <coughs> it is. And, but yeah, no, so I, I
0: Eat the grass, enough
1: <laughs> It was most mostly Vivaldi I fed grass to, apparently. So I was I was very into that. I would go through brief obsessions, but like not really with ninja turtles with things like Thomas Jefferson or, you know, Vivaldi or that kind of stuff. So <laughs> or calligraphy actually. I we were talking about penmanship earlier, and the way I got into it was that I went to an elementary school where we learned italic calligraphy along with cursive. And most people just sort of stopped once we stopped doing it, which would have been you know, after about two years of elementary school, and I stayed interested in it and kept on teaching myself and kept looking up other calligraphy hands.
0: Cool. I can recall buying from the Scholastic Book Orders, those learn to do lettering books. Yes, that would have, you know, and I remember looking at them and like getting the complicated ones and doing the only thing I could do, which was basically hold the paper over them and trace the letters and then move it around to make a word. But yeah, it's like the idea of actually learning that in school. That's fantastic. It was really,
1: really neat. I don't think it worked for everyone, but I was I was the kid it really hardcore clicked for.
0: So the question became, so then moving on, were you the person that people would ask to be like, oh, okay, we have a birthday card for this person. Hey, Jay, you want to do this?
1: Not really until college. I went to very, very small schools through the fifth grade. I, my mom is a Montessori teacher, and I generally ended up at usually in, in different classes and grades, but in the schools where she taught her in Montessori schools from preschool onward. Or actually, I started out at them, and then she eventually ditched research chemistry and decided to switch to teaching.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Again. More cred to your mom. Your mom sounds really cool. She
1: is. She's <laughs> fantastic. And then I went to for sixth through the end of high school. I went to a public school, but it was a magnet school for the gifted because more fun Florida education stuff. I believe at that time in Florida, um, gifted and talented technically qualified as a learning disability. Oh, for funding purposes, Sarasota had decided that it made way more sense to cut all of the gifted programs from their district schools and just have one magnet school that was basically a prep school, but with crap electives because it was so small. Like I. I grew graduated in a class of 98, and we had, you know, two language options and stuff like that, and I I have conversations with friends who went to normal schools, and they're just like, really? (laughs) But yeah, and like three different arts electives, and that was pretty much it. And a lot of AP classes. (laughs) And it was not an easy transition for me, and I basically spent middle school with no friends at my school. Got a little bit out of that in high school, but still had sort of an odd and, and lopsided social experience, and it wasn't really until college that I got to know people enough to be visible doing that stuff so
0: sure sure and you mentioned that some of the childhood stuff that you were doing you know felt performative or you were looking at it with dare I say a critical eye that early on so what were the sort of thing if the normal childhood media like you know air quotes normal let's say childhood media wasn't getting your attention I'd like to go through a little bit some of the things that did like really excite you in that way
1: god so An important qualifier here is that my parents censored very little of my media consumption. They had fairly strict rules initially about violence, mostly in in on-screen stuff. Even that was somewhat flexible and pretty much entirely relaxed once I was old enough to have coherent conversations about it. And other than that, basically, if I could understand it, if I could consume it, I was allowed to. When I was in preschool, I got really, really into my dinner with Andre. (laughs) We had it on VHS. We had a taped off the TV copy of it. And I loved it. I have no idea. I mean, I think I do know, which is that it was two people having a really intense conversation about really interesting things that were entirely outside of my frame of reference. So instead of showing me, instead of telling me, you know, this is, this is what this thing is like, it was entirely about these two guys' perspectives on it and left a huge amount to my imagination or to the understanding that what I was hearing was interpreted. And I still, so I have a horrible time. And I had a horrible time, especially with middle grade and YA novels, because I hated, hated books that put the main characters on the cover or had detailed illustrations on the cover and especially had (laughs) photos that were supposed to be characters on the cover. Because for me, they felt, too prescriptive. And like they were telling you, you know, this is, and and it it just, and like the words were supposed to speak for themselves, which I realize is a bizarre route to ending up in comics, but it's a different (laughs) medium. Yeah. So I really loved sort of just the intense focus of this. Otherwise, I had sort of a sense that cartoons were kid things. And we had a few movies, a few cartoon movies when I was growing up. Um, A couple had been Christmas gifts from my grandmother, and those were a couple Disney movies. And we also had Fantastic Planet. (laughs) Okay. Which is this, God, it's this surrealist French or Belgian art film. It's definitely not for kids. I definitely <laughs> watched it the way a lot of my peers watched regular kids' cartoons. Um, there was stuff like that, and... In general, I would do a lot of talking to my parents about what they were reading, and they would pretty openly share that stuff with me or, you know, teach me stuff from it. So, for example, my dad is a philosophy professor, and he teaches symbolic logic. So we had logic texts and books about logic sitting around, and I got really into some of those. I got really, really into a lot of math history stuff. To the extent that I had any kind of fandom, like the books that I still have my entire original set of and that I had all of were were the original Oz books.
0: Okay. I know we've spoken before about Anastasia Krepnik. Yes! I would oh think my would, god, yes. That would fall directly into the, you know, photo on the cover stuff, but I know that jumped around depending on the edition.
1: Yeah, so the editions that I started with had illustrated covers.
0: Ah, there you go.
1: I loved those books so much. I occasionally meet someone else who grew up on them or read them, and it's always this moment of sort of intense connection, just because they were such a specific experience. And they were such a cool and rare thing to find, which were books about, well, about a kid who in a lot of ways was kind of like me, who was, and at, at that point, I was still female identified, who was this, this, this girl who was nerdy in ways that they were about this girl who was nerdy in ways that involved not necessarily the specific media she consumed or being, you know, performatively awkward, but just in terms of how she interacted with the world. And, you know, she was from a mixed Christian Jewish family, and her dad was a college professor, and she really loved words and language and poetry and got fixated on weird stuff, had a of <laughs> Freud that she talked to.
0: And I was just about oh, to God. say, <laughs> yeah,
1: that was my favorite book. Someday I am going to get a Buster Freud, and I am going to draw the smile on it, and I'm going to color the back of its head for proper identification as compared to the gerbils. (laughs) But yeah, no, I loved those books so much. They were relatable in ways that very, very few books with protagonists my age were.
0: Yeah, and I could very much see that Anastasia Krepnik thing of Right. This is a thing that I've decided I'm doing. Yeah. Right. Now, what can I... Yeah. Without any frame of reference or anything, you know, that says, oh, this is why this is a thing I'm doing. It's like, no, this is a thing I'm doing and I'm going to do it as hard as I can.
1: Yes. Yes. Those weird and weirdly specific fixations and the not quite relating to peers, but also very much having a foot in your parents' world and, you know, having a day off school and going to your dad's classes and sitting in the back and things like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's fantastic. And this may not have been the same time that you were reading this but we have had momentary moments of joy on twitter talking about the mcdonald hall books as well yes
1: those overlapped for me pretty considerably i think i was reading them around the same time but yeah yeah those were a lot of fun and those were those were books that were in my elementary school library and i read i think almost all of the novels in my elementary school library so Mm. i read them and i sort of think of those as living under the umbrella of hijinks books along with stuff like the great brain
0: they are hella hijinks yes yes
1: they are Tremendous fun.
0: I came into them because Gordon Corman's a Canadian author, mm-hmm. and as such, you know, you were pretty much handed them around third or fourth grade. I had several friends who were very, very much into them, and so we would pass them back and forth like we were, you know, sneaking each other's cigarettes in prison. <laughs> Specifically, there was No Coins Please and I Want to Go Home, which are two non-McDonald Hall Gordon Corman books that were the first books I ever read so much that they fell apart in my hands. Wow! I was crushed because I hadn't realized a book could do that. And I felt really bad, like I'd read it wrong or something that would make it fall apart like this. Oh man,
1: I think mine was probably The Hero and the Crown by Robin McKinley.
0: And the thing is, I wanted to ask you as an editor, Mm. you know, what your opinion on something. So do you know what Gordon Corman has done with those books recently?
1: Um, I have watched a couple of the TV adaptations the moves. Okay. the movies. Is that what you're...
0: No, no. This is something actually a little bit different. Mm-hmm. What he's done, in order to keep them current for modern readers, he's gone back and he's updated the references to technology. Interesting. Specifically. So he's gone back, for example, in The War with Mr. Whistle, where he had like a punch card computer yes. and a system that would, you know, run the equivalent of an early Excel software and would do things like cut off Wilbur's name to Wilbur Hacken has changed it to, oh, now he's written a proprietary software that runs on the school computers, because it seems absurd that a school would not have a computer now. So like stuff like that has been changed in order to update them. The majority of the stuff is still the same, but those small changes have been done. And I would be interested to hear as an editor and as a reader, do you feel that that detracts or do you feel that would encourage or what's your view?
1: My view on that is pretty much neutral. That's something that I know Judy Bloom has done as well. Specifically, the context I know of in that is, is in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, where she's updated menstrual products because there's a lot in the book about that, and the ones that she references in it don't really exist anymore and haven't for decades. And honestly, I don't see any significant problem with that, especially if the original author is involved or it's done with their blessing. I think it's fine. I have trouble seeing it as necessary in this context, but I think a lot of that is because of the perspective from which I was approaching the books cuz for me McDonald Hall was such an abstract location and I read so I read a lot of the wayside school books too
0: oh yes
1: At around the same time, I think I kind of vaguely associated them. But I thought in general, like, boarding schools were this abstract and kind of anachronistic idea anyway. So the idea that things would just be kind of different there never really struck me as odd. And I was also, I was reading them, you know, closer to when they came out. I was reading them in the early 90s, late 80s. But yeah, I mean, I I see no problem with updating the technology in them. I think that's fine
0: yeah I mean I've seen people point out they'd be like okay well you know the book should be a time capsule of when it was written or set and it's like hmm, I think a lot of those details are actually extraneous to the plot yeah and if, if
1: copies of the original text still exist it's an interesting archival product and it's it's a good thing to have but I don't see anything fundamentally wrong with that kind of updating especially when you're writing books that are for a younger audience
0: yeah and i mean all you need is instead of it being you know a stock ticker in that kid's closet so they can you know speculate on silver mines in order to pay for a pool <laughs> instead he could just have the you know the apple stocks app on his phone
1: yeah it's been interesting seeing how the adaptations have approached that too
0: i have to track those down i think
1: they're i think they're on they're on netflix either netflix or hulu
0: Uh, It's always a toss-up because Australian Netflix sucks. Oh, right. Yeah, for a while I was living the dream with a VPN and could just get American Netflix. And then halfway through season one of The Flash, they cracked down on VPNs in Australia. And suddenly my VPN would get a screen that says, Hi, you're using a VPN. Please don't use a VPN. It's like, sorry, Netflix, I'll go to the Australian one. And I would sort of trudge out of the room. Alas. Oftentimes, when something will come off American Netflix and go to Hulu, it will suddenly become available on Australian Netflix. It's the strangest thing. Watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine has been an adventure.
1: Oh, yes. That is so good. <laughs> that is, I think, the one currently releasing show that I actually keep up with on a weekly basis. I should catch up on Legion and do it with that as well. But right now, it's just Brooklyn Nine-Nine.
0: Although, the one thing that I've restrained myself is I no longer just shriek with joy whenever Mark Evan Jackson comes on screen. <laughs> The first time he showed up i'm a huge thrilling adventure hour fan and the first time he turned up and opened his mouth i just sort of went (laughs) and then kimiko was staring at me and i'm like it's sparks nevada it's him (laughs) and just like hearing his voice and i would just let out this absurd laugh at the end of anything he said even though as kevin literally everything he said is a straight man comment yeah like there's no inflection to it although um are you caught up at the moment i am yes Okay, so again, it's the stinger on the episode, but it may have been my favorite point in that whole episode when he learned that he could have been seeing a movie about a mandolin. Yes. Set in Greece, based on a book, (laughs) and it's a period piece. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, so good.
1: Kevin is, actually, they're all kind of my favorite character, but Kevin is my favorite, favorite character on that show. I really, really love him.
0: Every time he turns up, you know everything is going to be good for a little while. Yeah, yeah. Now, initially in the email that you sent, you mentioned something very specific, and I knew the reference, and I was a little mystified that it came up in this year of Our Lord 2018. But maybe talk a little bit about being read Carlos Castaneda as bedtime stories.
1: Okay, so there's context that makes this make sense, (laughs) I promise. (laughs) I was an extremely insomniac kid. My parents tried a lot of different things to get me to sleep, and I pretty much always like, wanted to be read to. And the catch was that if they read anything that I could follow, I would stay awake and listen. So chapter books and novels were, for the most part, out. And the things that were successful were things like calculus textbooks, which are not fun to read aloud. And so my mom was trying to find a balance, you know, something that would just sort of be droning to me, but that she'd be interested in reading. And she started reading the teachings of Don Juan. And I was... Absolutely riveted. I didn't really quite get that I wasn't supposed to be following along with this, and so I did, and as a result, definitely knew more about peyote than anyone else in the second grade.
0: <laughs> and transformation rituals, and all kinds of stuff.
1: I mean, we didn't get that far, because once she realized I was following along, and also that it just wasn't working with the getting to sleep, we you know stopped reading not too terribly far in, but Yeah. <laughs>
0: I was handed that book, specifically The Teachings of Don Juan, by a friend of my uncle's who was uh, my uncle Mike, you know, friend of the family uncle type thing. And he gave me the first Michael Moorcock Coram book and The Teachings of Don Juan. So clearly he looked at me and went, hmm, I think I have this kid's number.
1: Yeah, this is a kid who will probably end up doing psychedelics at some point.
0: (laughs) Funny story, I didn't, but I'm not sure it was because of that book.
1: I finally did in my 30s, but, and and I did it because of pop culture, but not that pop culture, so.
0: Okay, so now, see, now you've said that, and now I have to ask. So which pop culture was the thing to tip the scales?
1: This is the most me thing ever. I wanted to watch Speed Racer on mushrooms. (laughs) And I did, and it was absolutely wonderful. And yeah, that was that.
0: Okay, so for those of you who have not heard Jay talk about Speed Racer. Jay loves Speed Racer because Speed Racer is great.
1: I love Speed Racer so much. And and specifically, I love the cartoon too. But when I say Speed Racer, sort of my go-to default Speed Racer is the 2008 movie, which is objectively one of the greatest movies of all time. And for whose honor, I will challenge Strangers to Duels.
0: (laughs) Because you've talked about Speed Racer. Was it on on Intuit, right? I did, yeah. Wasn't it your your return to Intuit? Yeah. And it's funny because I remembered watching Speed Racer the first time and did it the exactly wrong way, which is that I watched it on my iPhone on the train to work over three Ooh, separate mornings
1: yeah that's that's rough
0: not the way to do it
1: that's really rough
0: i found what was at least for me the perfect way to do it which was a after having listened to you talk about it and listened to you on Intuit. it i was at my girlfriend's house and it was on one of the cable movie channels in hd hmm. and so i went oh, speed racer is on and so we sat down and I'm like, we have to watch this. And I got really excited and we like ordered takeout. But we turned it on and it was in the middle. So we mm. turned it on basically for the final race. Ooh. And then the movie started over because that's the way it goes on some of these channels. Okay. And so we got to see it almost like as a flash forward and get to see the big payoff and the really well shot kind of fraught situation, you know, where he has to jumpstart the car by feel.
1: Oh, that's really interesting because so much of the movie has those time jumps in it Mm -hmm. but at the same time the arcs are so distinct that's oh man i really i like the idea of starting at that sort of any of the different act breaks and then looping
0: and then when you start over you suddenly get the context for those things And that gives, Mm -hmm. especially the beginning of that movie, and I'm sorry, Jay, I'm going to say a negative thing about Speed Racer. It's okay. The bit where he has to go and, you know, gets the tour of the facility and there's about maybe 20 minutes there where it's a little bit of tough going. There's a Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff getting thrown at you before you get to the joys of the races again. Because like Speed, the movie is really only interested in the races because the races are the best part.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's in a fantasy world where pretty much everything is organized around cars and racing. And once you look at it as a fantasy rather than a realistic cars a rad movie, it starts to make a lot more
0: sense. Yeah, and then you get the Casa Christi race, which is yes. bananas.
1: Which has one of the best well, several of the best moments in the movie. Specifically the car flipping punch with Racer X and the moment where Emile Hirsch very earnestly and intensely delivers the line Inspector Detector suspected foul play. <laughs> Which that's so good. is, ju- it, yeah, it's just, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it reminds me a little of Vincent Price and his, just his ability to make utter gibberish sound credible. Like that's not a line that should be able to have emotional impact. And it does.
0: <laughs> Coming back to Brooklyn Nine-Nine for a moment. You have Ray Holt talking about the Giggle Pig Task Force. Yes. And at no point do you question the absurdity of that statement.
1: Oh, Yes. Yes. <laughs> And Quazy Cupcakes.
0: <laughs> I will not pronounce the W. And then he does. <laughs> but no, Speed Racer is, yes, is, and Thing is watching it with, you know, the equivalent of popcorn and cheering at the screen. It's great. And I still stand by it, you know. He's racing Rex's ghost and letting it win. And I'm just like, uh oh, oh, it hits me. It hits me right in, the, right in the stomach. It's just a little bit perfect.
1: Yeah. The weirder parts of it, and especially... I know the montage you're talking about at the facility tour. If you've watched the old cartoon recently, like not as a kid, because the stuff you watch as a kid gets colored by perceptions and memories from then, it'll make a lot more sense. Because that is very much the pacing and surreality of the cartoon.
0: It makes sense, yeah.
1: A lot of the odder things in there are. And one of of the things, especially in the cartoon... So the, the cartoon had really distinct dialogue pacing because peter fernandez who did most of the localization who also played speed and rex wrote it to match the characters mouths ah. which the original dialogue didn't even in japanese but it resulted in a lot of characters just in just a lot of really fast really weird patter
0: yeah it's, it's made the show quite easy to parody and like throwing in hahas at the end of sentences and having that weird yes. staccato kind of and then i will deliver the thing like this
1: these amazing gnarly designs for the villains
0: Yeah, speaking of of things for the villains that have come through from the cartoon, the gangsters driving the mammoth car from the episode about the mammoth car?
1: Yes! Yes!
0: (laughs) Oh, I still question the reasoning of having a giant fish tank full of piranhas in a moving vehicle.
1: You know, again... It's fantasy logic. It's in some ways the narrative equivalent of running around with handfuls of matchbox cars yelling vroom. <laughs> <laughs> and the same level of elation. And there's a lot you just sort of have to be willing to take on faith with it. And the thing is, that's true of any of the Wachowskis movies. Oh, totally. And that was true of The Matrix. But in 2008, when Speed Racer came out, people weren't used to accepting that degree of immersion and accepting that degree of suspension of disbelief in anything that wasn't also presented as like dark and gritty. Mm, yeah. And so given this incredible hyper-saturated confection, they just went, uh, I don't get it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And especially being like, in my view, the wrong view of criticism, which is like, if you can pick something apart and find something wrong with it, it's therefore a bad thing overall. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's like that's saying that you know the examination of something destroys it. It's like, no, there's joy in that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as a critic, I feel strongly that the value of criticism and the point of criticism as a discipline, not as in you know criticizing something, is to foster an informed conversation. It's not necessarily to find the flaw or to prove a thing. It's to present a perspective that's informed, that's thoughtful, that's, you know, expressed in ways that involve framework and frame of reference and knowledge and certain degree of recognition of, of cultural standards that it's, it's going into. But the biggest point of it is, is to be a conversation starter, not to say, I have judged this and found that it deserves this letter grade from A to F. I hate that stuff.
0: And you know what? I actually think that's a really nice place for us to end it on. So, Jay, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go?
1: Well, you can find the podcast at explainthexmen.com. No E, just explain. And under the handle explainthexmen on Twitter and Tumblr. I don't really have a home base online right now, but I abuse Twitter horribly. (laughs) Under the handle raybeta, R-A-E-B-E-T-A, and I am postcards from space on Tumblr.
0: Yeah. And Jay has a quality follow. I highly recommend. And just as an end note, in moving, I found and used my Jay and Miles Explaining X-Men tote bag, the one that still had the blue sparkly paint on it that had your name.
1: Oh, excellent. So that was the transition edition one.
0: It was, yes. I did actually find my Yebo card inside it and it made me happy for a moment while I was packing. And look, way back in episode 15 and this is going to be like episode 78 or 79 this one way back in episode 15 i was interviewed by margaret h Wilson, and i was asked who who were my realistic dream guests and i said chris sims and i said you and now i've had both of you on chris multiple times can't stop that guy <laughs> he really likes liking things he does and that makes him special and i like him for that yes. yeah So I was really happy that we were finally able to do this, even though I am sitting in a room surrounded by boxes with no internet connection, and it is now 6.52 in the morning. So I'm really happy that we got to have this conversation.
1: Thank you, and likewise, this has been so much fun. I hope you're able to get some sleep. Thank you so
0: much for having me on very much to Jay edited for his time. When asking for Jay's signature cocktail, I was feeling a lot of pressure because I know that Jay is known for concocting all kinds of specialty cocktails for movie nights, parties, or any other occasion, so I knew I had to bring my A-game. When I asked, he said he prefers anything that tastes like either licking out a fire pit in a bog or very fresh flowers. He's a creature of contradictions, though he consistently stand in favor of difficult whiskey, gin with interesting botanicals, and Strega. Not fond of most fruit flavors, at least in drinks, unless they're very cool or tart and offset by herbs. And that was all the excuse I needed to go to my local tiny Italian bottle shop and buy myself a bottle of Strega. Strega, as I keep saying and will continue to say because it is very fun to say, is a very tasty herbal liqueur, named after... Well, there's no getting around it. It's named for the Italian word for witch which I think is really cool. Strega is not a subtle flavor though, so you really have to find ways to work with it. The nice thing is that it can take pretty much anything you throw at it. You're not gonna overpower it. It's Strega. And so I present the Lencio Fiocchino. In a shaker full of ice, combine three quarters of an ounce of botanical gin, three quarters of an ounce of Strega, three quarters of an ounce of Lillet Blanc, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, one dash of Peychaud's bitters, and one dash of hot sauce. I use Tabasco Chipotle, but trust your judgment. Shake vigorously and strain into a cocktail glass. If you want a little extra jump start, you can add a pinch of cayenne pepper to the top of the drink. Stop steering, start driving, and get that weak shit off my track. Enjoy! The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you could pledge as much as you want. You could drop like a grand. I would really appreciate that and probably use that to pay for a chunk of a new laptop. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I would just really appreciate it a whole bunch, even if it's a dollar. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating or write a review. Both will help people find the show, and I'll even read out the reviews. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find the Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode 1. That's 81 episodes of music, and something like 17 hours straight. Including this song. I don't actually know how to pronounce the title, it's by Russian Circles, and I really like it. It's got a real Mugwai kind of vibe to it. I update the playlist every week when the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe to get new music in your ears. Next week I'll be talking to, well here's the thing, next week Megan Bob is going to be talking to me. You see, when Megan Bob was on the show, she specifically said she wanted to interview me and ask me about things just about myself, or about formative media, or about how I do the show. And I said yes. So tune in next week to hear more about me, I guess. Join me, won't you? Now, I am using Audacity because about four or five months ago, my computer decided to go from a rock-solid recording platform something that gives me error messages that just say system overload and i don't think error messages say that anymore like i figured it would be like error 125 or something no no eventually it's just going to be a little crying oh. mac icon you're not even that eventually it won't even be an image you'll just hear a little <laughs> oh it's like oh sorry little macbook